Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Today, we're taking on a serious topic, so we wanted to put the trigger warnings right at the front because um, we're talking about the opioid crisis. So drug use, overdose, addiction, and death. And this is something that's been on my mind a lot lately. Um, I have had two relatives almost die from overdose, and a close family member of mine is currently in the hospital in a coma from an overdose. Um, and today is his birthday. Uh, so, oh, damn. Yeah, it feels weird. Double damn. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, right before my dad died, my mom, she lost a packet of oxycodone, I think, and the nurse said that there would have to be a police investigation because of that. Yeah, it's a felony level. Yeah, and she was so, so scared and yeah. so stressed about it. So it is a big, it's impacting a lot of people I know. Right. And that's in fact, for me, my experience has come from my day job. I've had several deaths among teens due to the use of heroin and opiate usage, such as like fentanyl. Um, and statistically, the death rate is highest for the 15, 19 teenage group. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't mean in general, just like if teenagers are dying, they're dying at the ages of 15 through 19. Mm-hmm. Um, and from 1999 to 2016, the increase of teen death due to opiate overdose rose over 300%. Right, and it's bigger and bigger every year. And of course, we have the whole conversation of access versus cost versus all of the things. And this is a lot to do with self-medicating, which is a whole different conversation in itself. But I've definitely had to deal more and more and more with that recently, and it's really heartbreaking and just traumatic in itself. Yeah, and for this episode, we did want to look at women in particular and and things that we can do about it. Um, I I will say for me, I'm actually allergic to most opioids. I uh, found out when I got my wisdom teeth out. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess lucky me. Um, yeah, I think I think overall after doing this research, lucky me. Lucky you. Yeah, it's definitely a huge thing. And, and though um, I typically don't take those um, because with my drug screen, even though obviously if you have a med- you know a prescription, yeah. it won't matter. But I do get drug screened with my other job. That stuff um, causes a lot of havoc and a lot of questions and a lot of um, different things because people can obviously, well, the reason it's been overused, and we'll talk more about that, is because of the level of it being prescribed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know my mom, because she's had to deal with back pain, gets so scared of it because yeah. of the mirror feelings and understanding of it that she will count every pill and then make sure to do halves of it. Like yeah. that's and it's smart actually. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the same way. I get really nervous just about any kind of medication. Right. I just have this fear which is kind of unfounded and kind of not that I'll just magically be addicted to it. Right. So I understand your mom completely. Right, on that absolutely. Point, yeah. A couple of years ago I interviewed a US representative who I believe is still in the house. Um and when we stopped rolling, he looked at me and he had this super serious face. And he said, with such urgency, your generation is going to have to find a way to deal with the repercussions of this crisis. Right. Like, we weren't even talking about it. Right. But he's from, I think he's from the state, is it West Virginia? It's one of the biggest right. impacted states. Right. So it's obviously huge where he's from. And before we get into all of this, I did want to say at the top, chronic pain is difficult. Right. Um, don't want to undermine the toll 
that that takes on someone or the difficulty of seeing someone in pain and providing individualized treatment plans. That's that's hard. Around 11% of Americans report experiencing pain on a daily basis, and that's about 25 million people, and double that live with chronic pain. Right. So... It's a huge scale problem. Like it is, and I know it's under um, misdiagnosed often. Yeah, and and that's a problem in itself. Mm-hmm. I'm not a doctor. I'm not in the medical field, so I can never say how a doctor or anybody in that field should do their job. But of course, that there's been a lot of uh, miscommunication and misunderstanding between the patients and the and the, the physicians, and that causes a lot of problems in trying to understand what chronic pain even means. Right. All right. So. Let's start with our kind of basics here. Opioids are drugs that target specific receptors or the nervous system to minimize the experience of pain. If used over a long period of time, a patient or a person can develop a tolerance, meaning that the same amount won't have the same effect. And this might lead to taking more and more to achieve that result that you had in the beginning or or withdrawal symptoms. And that can lead to overdose and death, especially when combined with other drugs and prescriptions. Right, and just to put it in a... More layman's terms. I don't know how I say it that way, but you know, it's what you would understand as oxycodone, hydrocodone, codeine. Um, it's an opiate, so it derives from poppies. Yes. yes. Think of the Wizard of Oz, poppies. <laughs> you got to say it that way. Poppies. I, guess. I always think of the poppy seed muffin from right. Seinfeld. Yeah, and actually, that I don't know how much of a myth, but there has been some confusion. There has been about poppy seed muffins, but it it does derive from the poppies. Yes. In the United States, more than 130 people die a day due to opioid-related overdose. In 2016, over 42,000 Americans died from opioid overdose. And of that, an estimated 40% of those opioids were prescribed. From 1999 to 2017, over 700,000 people have died because of opioid overdose. Two out of three overdose deaths involved Opioids. The number of deaths has increased six times since 1999. The economic burden of the opioid crisis is estimated to be $78.5 billion. And over 80% of the people who use heroin first abused opioids, a gateway drug. Past opioid abuse is the strongest risk factor to starting to use heroin. In 2017, drug overdoses involving heroin accounted for 15,000 deaths, and that's an increase of five times since 2010. That same year, enough prescriptions were handed out in 16% of U.S. counties that every person residing in that county could have a prescription. I remember the last time I broke my foot, um, even though I specifically said, I'm allergic to opioids, it's fine, I don't need them. They gave me some. Like, on the way out, they were like, here's your prescription. And a friend of mine jokingly said I should get it filled anyway and sell them. And I, I just tore it up. But it's like I said I didn't want any, right. and they gave me some. I'm literally... I think we joked. I joked about it with a friend, and it's not funny, and you shouldn't do it. No. But about uh, five years ago, we someone had a prescription, and you could sell a pill for fifty bucks. Whoa. One. Wow. Yeah, that's. Don't do it though. Do not do it. <laughs> we do not. Please, because this is a once again, it's a felony level crime. Yeah. So this is not a petty level crime. Yeah. Just an FYI. Yes, important FYI. <laughs> and it's estimated 3.3 billion overprescribed pills end up going to non-intended users. And it's important to remember not all overdoses result in death. Someone who overdoses once is likely to do it again, um, and which is why prevention and access to informed care is so crucial after someone who has suffered an overdose ends up in the hospital. Yeah, yeah. 
So how did we get here to these all of these terrible statistics? To answer that, we have to go back to the 1990s, which you might have guessed because a lot of the statistics seem to start in the 1990s. Right. Um, pharmaceutical companies reassured medical professionals that opioids posed no danger for addiction for patients. And in response, these healthcare professionals started prescribing them at higher rates. Before we knew how big a problem we were creating or that we had a problem even, the addiction was spreading to both prescription and non-prescription opioids. This has also led to the increase of babies born experiencing withdrawal symptoms. In 2001, the Food and Drug Administration approved the use of oxycodone for, quote, daily, around-the-clock, long-term use. In 2016, the FDA passed up a chance to be more vocal about opioids, but since has taken a more active role. While they send letters of warning to companies selling opioids online illegally, they pretty much stopped there when they could use their Office of Criminal Investigations. They have learned and progressed when it comes to abuse deterrent opioids, like making a drug less potent when ground up. It's like a technology that they've been looking into, um, but that's had mixed results. Right. The rate of opiate prescription has been declining since 2012, but the amount of prescribed morphine milligram equivalents is three times higher than when it was in 1999. Out of 100 Americans, 58 are prescribed opioids. That's around 3.4 prescriptions per patient with a daily MME, or as we were saying, morphine milligram equivalents, amount of 45.3. The number of days per prescription has been rising as well. The average is 18 days per prescription in 2017. At its peak in 2012, it was 81.3 prescriptions per 100 people. Wow. Yeah. That's shockingly high. Analysts break down this crisis into three waves. The first in the 1990s, with overdose deaths of prescribed opioids on the rise. And then the second, in 2010, deaths due to heroin overdose skyrocketing. Um, Some of the biggest increases of usage and abuse took place in demographics with previously low rates of heroin use, like among women. In 2017, almost half a million people reported using heroin. The third wave in 2013, uh, this one was marked with an increase in deaths from synthetic opioids, especially illegally manufactured fentanyl. It's 50 times more potent than heroin. Um, And when it comes to stuff like fentanyl, um, contamination is a growing problem as well, like different drugs combined. Exactly. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services declared a public health emergency in 2017 and issued a five-point strategy to combat the opioid crisis. One, improving access to treatment and recovery services. Two, promoting use of overdose-reversing drugs. Three, strengthening our understanding of the epidemic through better public health surveillance. Four, providing support for cutting-edge research on pain and addiction. And five, advancing better practices for pain management. So this is... A lot. A lot, and it's all happening now, and there are so many things at play in it. Um, It's really hard to isolate it into one thing. But we did want to look at women specifically. But first, we're going to pause for a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So we did want to take a moment to focus specifically on women because the impact on women in many ways is greater. And it's an indicator of so many other societal problems, like we were saying. Right. From Health Resources and Services Administration Deputy Administrator Brian DeClaire. 
Women are experiencing increases of use and overdose from opioids at a faster rate than men. And if you slice the demographic pie even more narrowly, the picture doesn't look a lot better. The opioid use disorder crisis affects women across all age groups, all racial groups, and all ethnicities, all geographical quarters of America, and all the socioeconomic status levels. Yeah. Of the prescribed opioids in the U.S., women receive two-thirds of them. There's an argument to be made that this is related to the fact that women are more frequently dismissed, misdiagnosed, and or not believed, and opioids are a quick, easy way to treat the symptoms without ever getting to the root of the problem. The whole time I was researching this episode, I kept thinking of the one we did about how um, women not being believed when they go to get treatment. Right. These doses are on average higher than what are given to men, and this has translated to an increase in opioid overdose mortality rates of 507% from 1999 to 2016, while men saw an increase of 321% over the same period. In 2014, women were being hospitalized for opioid-related reasons at a higher rate than men in all but 11 states and Washington, D.C. And compared to men, women are especially at risk for developing opioid dependency more quickly. And this could be because of a variety of factors. Women's generally smaller bodies, the relationship between pain sensitivity and hormones, and women's increased likelihood of experiencing chronic pain and our increased likelihood um, risk of trauma. That last one has been found to be a factor driving women to abuse opioids, but not men, trauma. We know a little about the science of addiction, but it does seem that there is a difference in addiction between men and women, and that women are more susceptible to relapse and cravings. Women may also be less likely to respond to treatment or respond to it differently. Right, and despite the severity of the problem, less than half of treatment programs supply any materials covering the specific risks posed to women. Only 21% provided programs focused on pregnant women or women with postpartum depression. According to one study, men are three times more likely to receive naloxone, which is the overdose reversal drug from first responders. Three times more likely. We've already discussed how this type of caregiving, of caring for someone with chronic pain or struggling with addiction, most often falls to women. That's another impact. Right, and I guess you could also talk about the silence that women have to bear pain. Yeah. It seems like women are more likely to be quiet and try to fix it themselves, and that's a whole different conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we want to talk a little more about women of color and people of color. Um, This is kind of the generalized information um, specifically to those in the black community, Latinx community, uh, people of color. Just kind of some of the numbers. As of 2017, the rate of death for those in the black community in several of the research cities are higher than those of the non-Hispanic white communities. In 2016 through 2017, the rates were 25% higher for the black population, while the white community was at only 11%. And then at, for the Latinx community, it was 11.5% higher. And according to a research conducted in Washington state, the opioid-related deaths for Native Americans and Alaska Natives surpassed those of all white individuals. And there are many debates about who they are focusing on for treatment and understanding the problem. And as many states, white, white people are victims and people of color, specifically Latinx and the black community, are addicts and criminals. Mm-hmm. Of course, this is a bigger and bigger conversation, which needs to be paid attention to. We have to talk about the racial inequalities of addiction and criminalization of addiction. Studies have shown how discrimination and bias affect treatment for those of color anyway. So you put that with those of color and those who are women and then add um, that the racial bias for those who are suffering from addiction and the likelihood of them getting the correct treatment 
or being treated as a victim instead of as a criminal. Yeah. And I think that's a big overanalyzation, obviously, of what I'm saying, because you have to look at the intersectionality of what it is to be an addict as a black person who may be LGBTQ, who mm-hmm. may be uh, identified as female or transgender, whatever. Mm-hmm. That the likelihood of people even listening to them and yeah. their needs, and all they get is, oh, they're, and of course, I don't agree with this, they're crazy, move on. Right. There's no hope. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, I've ran into this just watching children mm-hmm. and teenagers who suffer through many addiction problems, just like the white community, yep. but they are more, they are less likely to be treated mm-hmm. seriously. Yeah. Um, and they're going to be more likely treated as criminals. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem in itself. And I think we have to address repeatedly about why this is inaccurate and how it has increased a lot in the last five years and people are not not acknowledging it mm-hmm. and just still using it as a white problem for it to be fixed as, right. a, as opposed to um, an actual problem for everyone yes. and that it needs to be listened to and heard and treated equally. Yeah. Um, I th- that reminds me of that the Wanda Sykes joke about how... <laughs> prescription drug abuse is a white person thing because medical professionals refuse to prescribe right. uh, opioids to black people due to racist stereotypes that they are drug addicts just trying to get drugs. So yeah, that is also a huge part of this conversation that we do need to continue having. Um, what are things that we can do? Um, well, first off, if you suspect someone has suffered from an overdose, call 911 uh, signs include small pinpoint pupils, falling asleep or loss of consciousness, choking or gurgling sounds, pale, cold, or blue skin, limp body. Um, did want to say that because uh, I've heard this play out in college, and it's, it's so scary that this even comes up. But Good Samaritan laws in many states prevent the person suffering from the overdose and those that help from being charged with possession. Right. Well, it's supposed to. It's supposed to. It's supposed to. But that is an absolute big fear within communities, yes. especially groups who may be doing these things together mm-hmm. um, and allowing, not allowing for um, emergency treatment because they're afraid of being caught. Um, And just a reminder, drug overdose and drug usage is not always clear, Mm -hmm. obviously, because if you look at any of these signs, it could just mean they started choking or passed out. Sure. Um, And it's not your job to diagnose. Let's just remind of that and and act fast if you're concerned. There are new ways of counting overdose. Um, That's what we kind of mentioned before, the naloxone, and and we'll probably talk a little bit more later on, uh, as well as the fact that it's not your job to judge. No. So... I know there's this whole conversation, not conversation, but there's all these jokes with people in the homeless community and the addiction in that era. It's not your place. If they need help, help. Yeah. Of course, you're not a savior either, so. Right. Double-edged. <laughs> Double-edged. When it comes to what we can do to tackle this crisis, a big one is changing prescription practices, particularly in this case when it comes to opioids. One way to accomplish this is by establishing practical clinical guidelines. And the CDC has guidelines for prescribing opioids for patients 18 and older experiencing chronic pain, if you want to look up those Another recommendation for reducing opioid exposure is using a prescription drug monitoring program, PDMP, which the CDC provides funding for, um, depending, not for everybody, but it is an option. Um, Changing state drug prescription laws, reformulating insurance policies, education for providers about prescription guidelines, as well as how to have conversations about the potential cost of taking opioids and proper storage and disposal and raising awareness. 
also have discussions about other options because there are other options to opioids. Providing treatment for opioid use disorder in the form of evidence-based treatments like medication-assisted therapy, MAT. Which are not equally available to low-income women and women of color, as we kind of talked about the inequalities that's happening for those um, who are lower income or those of a color. White people are the ones primarily benefiting from MAT drugs, up to 35 times more likely to receive than a black person. Also, it can be quite expensive without private insurance and even then making it inaccessible for the poor, which is... Infuriating. Very infuriating. Another thing that's infuriating, 70% of women going to treatment centers have children, and without access or resources for childcare, it can be really difficult. Um, having access to free or low-cost childcare or centers that provide childcare on-site would be a huge thing. It would also help if we improve access to overdose reversal drugs like naloxone, which is non-addictive and that can save a life if given in time. Having standing orders at pharmacies, distributions at local community centers, training and access on how to administer for law enforcement and medical staff would also be a giant, giant improvement. Another big thing, collecting better data so we can fully understand the scope of the problem and make informed policy recommendations on how to move forward. And there are a couple other things that we have that we could do, but first we're gonna pause for one more quick break for word from our sponsor. we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So when looking at women specifically, the National Women's Health Network recommends expanding Medicaid to cover those with lower or moderate income. And this increases access to care and decreases accruing devastating medical bills. Medicaid can also provide access to treatments for opioid use disorder. However, not all states have the same benefits through Medicaid. So this is not an end-all be-all solution at all. In 2020, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services will introduce their Maternal Opioid Misuse Model, MOM, to address the need of new mothers postpartum or otherwise going through opioid use disorder in 12 states. In 23 states, substance abuse during pregnancy is charged as child abuse. And of course, they are more often used against low-income women and women of color. 25% of these arrests take place in Shelby County, Tennessee. 25%. Wow. A county that is 50% African-American. One county. Yeah. That's yep. telling. Mm-hmm. This, of course, discourages people from seeking treatment for addiction. Without access to information about treatment options and rights to seek them without police involvement, the problem is only going to get worse. However... I completely understand black women being skeptical of that information. Right, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. And this is a huge problem that does not exist in a bubble. Addiction, big pharma, a lack of access to mental health care, inability to afford long-term health care options like physical therapy or multiple doctor visits, insurance, chronic pain that does not have an easy answer, and a failure to put patients and people first. A lot. There's a lot. Yep. Uh, But there are some resources out there. The CDC is a great one for more information, best practices, and links to other resources. They also have an RX campaign to spread awareness about the opioid crisis. It includes stories from people who have been directly impacted by it. There's Health Resources and Services Administration, the HRSA, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, um, and they have a number you can call. This is 1-800-662-4357. Substance Abuse Help, SAMHSA's National Helpline is 1-800-662-HELP. 
And all these national hotlines, there are individual um, offices in each state. So they will have a better access for you to have locally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did want to put a few out there that do work with some of our minorities and some of our um, under represented individuals. The Trevor Project actually works with the LGBTQI plus um, community that works with substance abuse. The Asian Health Coalitions actually work with the Asian community. Uh-huh, <laughs> I feel sense. like that's, that's right there. And then there are county organizations like the Urban Minority Alcoholism and Drug Abuse Outreach Program that happens in Franklin County in Ohio. So there are different uh, organizations that work specifically with specialized groups, and I think that's actually really important. Yeah. Um, if you guys, obviously, there's tons more out there that I'm not talking about, but these are some that just came out. Um, and of course, as you know, Annie and I love more information, so give me that. Yes. Please, please send us any information resources you have, because this is, it's a really massive... It is, and it affects everyone, um, as we understand the idea behind addiction in general, Yeah, I think, and, and the fact that it is hurting so many communities, so many families, um, and that we need to learn to be louder and to advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves. Yep. Yep. Um, so that's what we have to say about that today. Oh. But uh, we really, really would appreciate um, any any resources that you have or any stories that you have that you would like to share. You can email us at stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast and on Instagram at stuffmomnevertoldyou. Thanks as always to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Andrew. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I'm Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hold up. 